You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Cross. Needling of jabs, riddle of ducks and feints. You wait for a clear target. It comes as brief as a spark plug's discharge, a flash of nicker. You unload from the pivoting toes of the back leg, extend through knee, hip, ribs, shoulder, elbow. You are industrial, a piston, oiled metal pane. Misjudge, and your attack could be countered. Your nose smacked, ice pack absent, numb. Worse, your blow could absorb like meltwater into the padding of your opponent's gloves. Hello, and welcome to the latest Scottish Poetry Library podcast. My name is Colin Waters, and I shall be your host for the next 30 minutes. Our latest interview is with the poet and novelist Angela Cleland. I first encountered Angela's poetry when a poem by her was chosen for our annual online anthology, Best Scottish Poems, back in 2013. I was intrigued by the diverse range of interests apparent in her collection published in the same year, Room of Thieves. Reading through it, one discovered poems about boxing, the internet, all sorts. It was with great pleasure then that I was finally able to set up an interview with Angela here at the SPL. Angela was born in Inverness in 1977 and grew up in Dingwall by the Cromarty Firth. As you'll hear, she wrote for her own enjoyment from an early age. She studied English at the University of Glasgow and later a creative and life-writing master's in London at Goldsmith College, where her tutors included Lavinia Greenlaw and Morris Reardon. In 2006, she was one of three winners of the Templar Poetry Pamphlet and Collection Competition, and in 2007, she published her first full collection, and in here the Menagerie. The poem Peeling from this collection was highly commended in the Forward Book of Poetry 2008. I started by asking Angela when she began writing poetry. Um, I started writing when I was very young. Um, My first recorded um, piece of poetry was actually on a a cassette tape. Um, Every Christmas my mum would make a cassette to send to my great-grandfather. And um, I'm on there at quite a young age, I don't know, five or six, reading a poem that I'd written. Um, Not a very good one. And that's the first evidence I've got, really, that I started writing. Um, I did write quite a few poems in in primary school as well, but, you know, we were encouraged to do that. It was quite a nice creative environment. And then in secondary school, um, I did have the typical, you know, teenage attraction to to poetry, I suppose. Um, But I also had an an excellent English teacher um, when I was doing my uh, hires on my CSYS English called Miss Leghorn. And she, um, she was fabulous, and she introduced me to all sorts of poets I'd never heard of, you know, from John Hegley to everyone, really, you know. And she was big on, big on her Shakespeare side of things and um, big on Norman McCaig and that kind of stuff as well. So it, it, there was a big range of poetry that I was introduced to that I wasn't really aware of. Mm. I also learned that there are poets still alive writing poetry, which was quite exciting because, you know... You tend to to read all the dead poets when you're in secondary school. But she had a sense that there were poets alive and writing, which was nice. And this was in Inverness, that's where you grew up? In Dingwall, so uh, not far from Inverness. Dingwall Academy. (laughs) What's it like? Does it inspire young poets' fancy? Is it out in in the natural world? 
yeah, you can see the mountains to the west and we're just um, in the shadow of Ben Wivis. Yeah, there is a lot of beautiful landscape around, which I suppose is, is conducive to writing poetry. Um, but my, my first attempts at poetry really came from uh, more from a kind of a metaphysical side. I, was, I really enjoyed John Donne when I was a teenager, as I'm sure a lot of teenagers do. <laughs> I don't think I read him until I was at university. No? Okay, okay. That's Miss Leghorn's fault again then. The first kind of poem that I went public with, if you like, uh, to my teacher um, was a love poem, which ended up actually um, winning the... There was a Scotsman School Magazine Prize. I don't know if they still run it. And they had a prize for poetry and it won that. And that really kind of set me off. But it was really a kind of a... A discussion of of love, and it was a it was a, a monologue, really, an address addressed to a lover. It wasn't so much the landscape as the that was more of an internal impetus, I suppose, for starting to write poetry. Yeah, and that really got me going. You know, winning a prize is always nice, isn't it? And that mm. sort of makes you think, oh, I can do this. <laughs> and that's what kept you going. I mean, I suppose at a certain point, most teenage poets just go, you know, I'm going to pack this in now. It's yeah, not going anywhere. I yeah, mean, it's a pretty thankless job being a poet. So what, is, what, yeah. <laughs> what kept you going? What kept you going through your, your I guess, your, through and into your 20s? Well, I studied um, English language and literature at Glasgow. And so I was reading a lot of poetry. And I mean, I still find, you know, that I'm, I write most poetry when I'm reading more poetry. So I suppose that's what kept me going was inspiration from what I was reading. Although a lot of it was, again, dead poets. <laughs> The majority of the modules that I studied were from, you know, kind of Renaissance onwards. And while I did study modern poetry, there wasn't a great deal of it. Um, just one one term's worth, one course's worth. Um, but yes, that really fed into what I was writing and just kept me ticking over in the background. But that was still, it was still very much a, a hobby then. I mean, it's, you know, it's still a hobby now, but <laughs> um, I hadn't had anything published at that stage. I'm always interested in how poets actually, you know, when they get to the moment where they go, oh, there's a poem here. Do you have like a, a tingle or is there, is there just something, you know, you're suddenly onto something good and you go, this is going to make, make a poem. Or is it like maybe weeks or months later you think back and you go, ah, oh, that was a poem. I'm going to work on that now. Gosh, I don't know. Um, my mum says something to me quite often. She says, oh, Angela, that would make a good poem. <laughs> and I always think... Oh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I tend not to have events or moments that inspire my poems. So sometimes it'll be I'll be scribbling away and a line will come out that I like and I'll work from that little kernel and work out and sometimes, you know, it, it goes into something good and sometimes it ends up in the bin or, well, I never bin anything, it ends up in the back of the notebook and, and never looked at again. But there's very rarely a kind of a flashbang inspiration moment. It's happened a couple of times and the poem has come out very quickly and very easily. And I thought, oh, that was a bit of a cheat. <laughs> Am I allowed that? And, um, you know, there have been good poems, but most of them it's down to writing rubbish until something good comes out and then recognising the good bit and working on it and working on it and, mm. and so on. So what about uh, one of the poems I really like in your um, your last collection, Room of Thieves, uh, Waiting for Connection? In fact, why, why not read it right now, actually? Then... You can do, yeah. Yeah. Waiting for Connection. 
I can see it in the air outside, glowing, towers of data, unenterable, unscalable, a red ghost metropolis risen up from the frog-squat houses of the suburbs, stacked to vanishing point, translucent rooms full of translucent boxes, air chirping with information. I could scoop it hand over hand into my mouth, stick my face in it, holding my eyes open beneath the surface, roll in it, until my clothes cling to me obscenely. Its neon walls fly-zap possibilities. To walk down the street, to leave the house. And anyway, all the libraries are shut. The shops are shut, the houses are shut. And every lit window in their red brick fronts is a taunting monitor, Ikea, Facebook, Twitter, iWoot, Wikipedia, Amazon, Google, Google, Google. I need connection. I need stuff, and I need it delivered by 9am. My fingers, oh, my fingers are slivered. My fingers are slivered by catalogue pages. My mind by the edge of the dead voice that apologises over and over for the wait. See, I love that poem. I love it because, well, it's about something, you know, that literally surrounds us. You know, this data flying invisibly through the air. Mm. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's written enough about, you know, it's just one of those things that we sort of let fly past us but what what inspired it what made you think you know there's a poem there you know I'm going to contradict something that I just said Good. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think I wrote this I say I think because I can rarely remember where they actually come from which is not very good for interview purposes I wrote it shortly after moving to the suburbs um, outside of London and um, it was literally waiting for the internet to be connected. And I just hadn't realised how reliant I was on it. I, I thought, this is interesting. This is really something about my life and about modern life that is worth getting something down about. You know, it was, it was an obsession for those few... I mean, it felt like weeks. It was probably only a few days until we got connected. But I was really, you know, struggling, trying to get what I wanted from the internet on my phone and on this tiny, tiny screen... Instead of, you know, just being able to click and have what I wanted immediately. It's a mo is... very modern kind of anxiety, though, isn't yeah. it? That you're not part of something anymore. Yes, you, know? you feel completely cut off. And I didn't really, I don't think I'd ever thought about the fact that that might be how I felt about it. You were maybe feeling slightly geographically cut off as well, if you'd moved out to the suburbs. It's somewhere new. It's very Ballardian, is this, so. isn't it? You know, I the suppose. idea of... Um, like that book by J.G. Ballard, Concrete Island, where mm. it's about a guy who's just, he's actually only on a traffic island, <laughs> but it's, all, it's like Robinson Crusoe, you know. Yes, yeah. There you are in the suburbs, surrounded by people, and surrounded by people who are not connected, and yet, because your own connection isn't there, it's inspired this whole sort of um, poem in which there's, there's like skyscrapers of invisible data all around you, but somehow you're not accessing it. Yes, yes, that's true, that's true. And I mean, I suppose there, there are quite a few poems in, in this book which are related to the same sort of thing. There's one, there's a commuter poem, which is, you know, about that, that feeling of being connected to London by just this one thin line and when everything goes wrong, I think it's uh, Frozen Points it's called, you know, when everything goes wrong, that's it, you're, you're trapped. Should we and, hear uh, that? Wait, let's have another poem. Frozen, Frozen Points. Points. Frozen Points. We are nasty, cubist, snagging on each other's angles, grow more acute at each irritation. The anger of trigonometry frustrated is sharp in brows, is taut in bodies drawn like bows, 
stings along the rims of eyes held open too long between dry blinks. Our jolting progress, the painful geometry of upholstery, straight, narrow tracks beneath. We feel their icy parallelism with the morning's vanishing form. We could denounce shapes forever when there, above a perfect slant of fence, simple, a necessary circle of just switched on red, the sun cut neatly from the grey crowdless sky, and we stare. We stare much longer than we need to, blink and hold its ghost to us, blood close. So has moving to the suburbs proved surprisingly fruitful for your poetry? I don't know. Not well, it might have done if I hadn't gone and had two children. <laughs> Which actually, you know, they're, they're now coming into my poetry. There's a bit of a delay before, mm. you know, there's the, the inspiration, I suppose, in the background. And then there's a time lapse and then it starts to come out in the, the scribblings that I talk about. Yes, I did get a few poems specifically about moving and about the difference between living in the city and, and living in the suburbs. I really love living in London and it, it's, you know, it's, it's a very different experience to anywhere else, really. But, you know, being in the suburbs has its own feeling, it has its own atmosphere, particularly, I think, you know, when you're in the kind of commuter belt, there's a sense that you're, you're close to something really big, but you're not quite a part of it, but you're so close that it's almost like the place can't be a whole place in and of itself you know you're, you're not you're orbiting London in a sense so there's always a relationship to London that's there maybe that's just having moved out but it does feel very much like you're you're orbiting the city rather than living in a place that is a a, a place in and of itself well that's interesting because you've got a poem called the suburbs as well which uh, I do, is yes. about I guess uh, actually yeah. your first few nights living in the suburbs maybe it'd be great to, to hear that the suburbs Everything is disassembled, reassembled at the other end, this end, where it is so quiet you can hear the screws that are loose, the screws that are missing. My hands are bruised from allen-keying bolts, the hairs in my ears tickle with the creak of metal on wood. A plane flies over. Sleep here is an isolation tank during the hours forbidden to flight. I luxuriate in it, open my mouth for the night to enter and embalm me wholly. And how could I never have realised we owned so many ticking things? A plane flies over. Your voice is unpolluted. Its frequencies splatter the air, a Hurstian explosion. I hear sweet notes that have eluded me for our eleven years together in cities. Everything echoes. The air is cold, clear, Thin, zwiebelsoup, chicken noodle, something Chinese. A plane flies over. The silence prickles, clean of the sounds I'd ceased to hear in the city. People talking on the pavement outside, yawning upstairs, flushing next door, vibrating the building around us. I hold my breath. Here is the sound. The turn of the record before the music starts. A plane flies over. Here, every creak, every snap is set apart, given space, as if this is a gallery of fine noise. This piece, the creeping stopcock cough, how much? It will sound tremendous in my loft apartment. 
A plane flies over. A city passing through cancels out everything. Fills in the spaces between sounds like sand. Provides a background for all other noises to hide. Stagehands dressed in black against a black backdrop. Let's move on to boxing. Boxing. Because there's not one. Not two, but in fact three poems in Room of Thieves about boxing. I take it you are enthusiast, an um, enthusiast. Well, uh, when we moved to the suburbs, my husband and I took up boxing, as you do. Um, I hope everything was all right between the pair of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it was, it's nice to spar with your other half. I can't remember what the impetus was. There's a, there's a martial arts gym in Egham. And I guess we both saw it and thought, oh, that would be an interesting new fitness thing to do. So we ended up going along and finding out about kickboxing and that sort of thing. But they also did, you know, your classic punching each other boxing. And we dropped in for a training session and both really enjoyed it. And so for, I guess, about a year or so, I was going to, um, going to boxing classes, boxing training I suppose and yeah that's where the the poems came out of it, um I typically thought you know I started writing them and I thought oh this is great you know this is a new new experience you know new new territory new material for writing and the um the boxing trainers one of them had a good turn of phrase and there's one or two things that I nicked from him and put into the po- into the poems yes. you know he would describe a a hook as a slow as a door slamming action so you know the the way they describe the different movements to you to get to get you to be able to move your body in the right way was quite interesting to me and i suppose that's what made me you know made me think oh this could be worth a, a couple of poems but then you know i wrote a few and then i thought oh i'm going to do a see like a whole massive long series on boxing it's going to be tremendous and got to three mm. and managed to eke out a fourth, because I thought, oh, I need to do at least four. <laughs> um, yeah, and then stopped there. Mm. There are some other punches that I, I worked on poems for, but yes, nothing that got, got past the first stage. It's, it's very interesting because I would imagine, I uh, don't know if it's the case or not, but let's just say it for the sake of the, the interview, that it must be a toss-up between football and boxing for which are the two most written about sports in, ah, not yes. just in poetry but you know in, in prose as well yeah and boxing certainly has a very long tradition of mm. being written about but it's always very beefy writers have a conception of themselves almost as pugilistic types anyway so it's your yes. Hemingways or yeah. your, your Norman Mailers I can't really think and I'm sure there's now some professor of literature out there uh, listening who's going what a fool but you know I can't really <laughs> think of any women who've written much about boxing so apologies to that professor of literature oh, who's now coming up a whole list of these there's an American uh, poet who has written uh, oh, a collection which has a lot of boxing stuff and I, I can't remember her name now mm. um, but yes there, there is there is some out there um, but I suppose it's I suppose it's reasonably unusual I mean it was the only woman in the class so you know there's I guess there's not as many women box as men if if I could ever say that I had properly boxed you know I wasn't that great maybe yeah. now with Nicola Adams yeah. uh, perhaps there'll not only be more uh, women boxers but more women writing about box maybe uh, you never yes. know you never know yeah you are also got an interest in science uh, do you, you don't is your job based on no science? no um 
in another life it might have been I I nearly went I nearly did science at Glasgow Uni actually. Um, I, I first got a place in in the science department, but um, science faculty. But I didn't. I didn't. Um, so I I know quite a few scientists, and I have an interest in science fiction. I read quite a lot of science fiction. And wrote a science fiction novel yes, as well. Yes, and I've written a science fiction novel. Um, Which is called. It's called Sequila. This isn't just something you reserve for for prose. You've got nope. some poems in the book that have a sort of science fictional element to them as well, don't don't you? Yes, yeah, there's um, a, a three-part poem, um, Three Roots to Immortality, which has a sci-fi bent to it. And I, I suppose I actually set out to write that one. I think I actually sat down and thought, I haven't written any properly science fiction-based poems. And I, I have written ones with kind of sci-fi background or a sci-fi feel to them. But I'd never actually written some something that, you know, you could sit down and point your finger at and say that is science fiction. And so that's where that came from. Mm. Um, and I think that's possibly because I was writing the novel at the same time. It's a fascinating genre or, or, or subgenre. Mm. Here at the SPL, we're very interested in science fiction poems because we house our, the archive of probably, I don't know, maybe the person who did them best or one of the people who's really yes, associated yeah. with that, Edwin, Edwin Morgan. Morgan yeah, yeah. And so we're always really interested to hear mm. science fiction poems here. Maybe we should hear um, the poem about immortality. Three Routes to Immortality. Option one, preservation. She explains why they require the head. The human soul is a network of fields, thrown up by the coils of the brain when a simple current is passed through it. She invokes the ubiquitous geometry of the Nautilus, twirls me like the strings of a double helix around her little finger. The consulting room is a soothing fusion of spa and hospital. There are undeniable diagrams on the wall, a skeleton strung up like the naked truth. The complexity of the soul is governed by the complexity of the brain which generates it. Consider a slug. Consider a baby. Think of yourself. Consider those first basic spark plugs firing in the primordial soup. I nod. I see it. My soul's machine woven from a single slithery thread at conception to a grand cathedral of connections, an attic made rich with time and neglect. I ask the heaven question. If there is a god, she says, he's a sparky, and heaven is the national grid. You're as much yourself there as electricity is the TV it once powered, spilling out upon your living room as light. Better to live on than be homogenised. But I see you've ticked atheist on your form. I smile and nod. She's right, the point is moot. The skeleton grins, guttle a gear, and I do not need to be persuaded to live. I lay my neck on the dotted line. Option two, reconstruction. The machine version of my brain is depressingly small. I was expecting valves and pistons, vast chimneys spewing pearlescent clouds into the atmosphere, the claws on metal screech and grind of industrial scale magic, a bulging midnight warehouse with light escaping at the seams. Warning signs, a trench, at the very least barbed wire. 
They say that its size is constrained only by the width of lines that can be carved onto its surface. That these days, sinister grandeur is small, clean, exact. And I agree in principle, agree that no, I would not want chimneys steampunking my phone. But it feels wrong that even these days, I should fit on the tip of my own little finger. Option three, repurposing. Left arm stretched up, slightly bent, arcing over my head. Head bowed, neck bared, as if to a lover's lips. The stretch should reach down my left side and the tension pull my body tight like a carcass on my hand's dead hook. Right leg extended, feet planted in fourth position, to provide me with elegant balance. Think Art Nouveau lamp. When the plastination is through, they can paint me platinum and pick out each light-slithered pucker and sinew in gold. Make sure my right arm is out, palm up, and it clutches an absent glass globe that my fingers are curled enough that they will each hold one or two coats, leave a big enough gap between hand and head for the casual sling of your hat. I'll finish by asking you about the poem that gives the collection its title, <laughs> Room of Thieves. Now, yeah. that's an interesting poem because it's all about, if I remember rightly, it's almost like the woman's being sort of, parts of her being stolen as yes. you know, she walks into a room. Yeah. So I would think that's quite a, a feminist poem, you know. It's, hmm. I suppose, yes, I suppose you could think of it that way, yeah. Because it's about the sort of male gaze and, you know, the way that it sort of, it takes... It's been a while since I read it. So. Yeah, no, no, no. It's um, well, it's funny you should say that, and I, I haven't really thought of it as a feminist poem, um, but yes, that is that is one reading of it, um, and it is very strongly related to um, the origins of the poem. It actually came about, and I, at every step of the way, I've been. Um, contradicting what I said about not having specific moments or things that inspire poems. Maybe that was true, truer of my um, earlier poems than it is of, of more recent ones. It's like what, Whitman, isn't it? Do I contradict myself well, very well then? I contradict myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly like that. Yes. <laughs> Room of Thieves came about after I went to the Forward Prize party. I should do. One year, as one does, yes. Um, I got an invitation because there is a poem out of my first full collection and in here the ma menagerie. Um, one of the poems from there was included on the, the highly commended list, which was nice. Not a poem I particularly liked myself, but, you know, it was nice to get to go to the party. And um, it just struck me as such a dangerous place to be. You know, there was poets everywhere, and if they weren't poets, they were artists, and if they weren't artists, they were journalists, and they were all people watching each other and I just got this sense that if you were looked at in that room some part of you was going to be taken away and and used mm. you know there, there was a woman there who had a, a magnificent hairdo which features um in the poem the curl turned neatly as an O and um she looked so distinctive you know she was in a, a fabulous get-up quite kind of retro styled you know made up beautifully in this this amazing hairdo and I thought there's no way that people aren't going to remember her and use her and take parts of her and, and put it into their art. As you did. As I did, yeah, no, I know. And then I was the ultimate 
sinner, really, in that respect. It is, I suppose, in a sense, a feminist poem too, because I have chosen to make it from the woman's point of view, mm. and actually thinking about it, all the the thieves in the poem I do think of as male. Mm. So, <laughs> Room of Thieves. She walks into the room, explodes like a Picasso on its surfaces. Look there, her button nose amongst the sausage rolls. Everyone she passes catches something of her. Her parts are no longer her own. Not that curl turned neatly as an O. Not the tilt of her peony head. Not her butterfly eyes. Not her warmth as she pauses at the elbows of conversations. Look, you would have thought that chap a gentleman were he not tucking her pussy bow into his top pocket. There, the man leaving too early. Is that hamster bulge in his cheek what you think it is? Tonight, when the pubs shut, across the city, windows will start with light, blinds will slide down and shoulders hunch, as if over porn mags, as if trying to keep a candle lit. And with slight hands, one will slip an iris from his wallet. One tip a string of her cold perfume from the crease of a flyer, another, and fold her hand in his like a stray glove. Back in her flat, removing hairpins, she'll smooth fingers over where she swears she'd had a beauty spot, eyelashes, breasts. One by one, they will turn up, private things in public places. Her eyes will blink each pause in a pop song. Nostrils raised on canvas will breathe her through the tape. Seventeen sonnets will hinge on the fall of her stolen limbs. Her knees will make neat warm hollows in the latest bestseller. Chapter 4, page 53, The Graveside Scene. And that's about it for another Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Many thanks to Angela Clellan for taking part. Will Campbell for writing and performing the podcast theme tune. And of course to you for listening. If you want to keep in touch with what the SPL is up to between podcasts, you can, of course, visit our website. The address for that is www.scottishporchlibrary.org.uk. We also have a Twitter account and our handle is at By Leaves We Live. We have a Facebook page and we are now doing Instagram. And I believe our handle for Instagram is SPL Scotland if you're looking for it. Now, we'll, we'll have another podcast along in about a fortnight. But until then, here's one last poem by Angela. Buttons. A scree of buttons in a striped chocolate box sits on the side by a bundled work shirt. Through the wall, on the kitchen TV, news. A woman this time. The footage rolls. At the blast, the buttons start like a flock from their age-soft box and stick to the air to be counted and loved one last time. Silver anchor... Blue Kittenhead, Ladybird. All at once an army of ghosts has ripped open coats, cardigans, frocks and sent a shrapnel of fastenings hurtling to wedge in the fabric of five to ten this morning. Military brass, fake gold, leather, a stray belt buckle from a favourite dress are stitched like a poor substitute for stars to a swollen backdrop of combustion. Right now, this could be any city that has ever been done up for war. The buttons, 
medals, the toggle, the mother of pearl, the shank, to honour the brave, the young, the late, the waiting, the happened to be there. The air is the used-up air of a conscription office. In the last flicker of the instant, there, bright in the blaze of the kitchen door, a factory-made shirt button, white, small, perfectly round, uniform. downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.